welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I have the privilege of continuing our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, today looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Now, let's begin. Thank you, Hannah, Becky, Dave. Very much appreciate that the songs that were chosen. The fact is that living for Christ is not always easy. Before we get started on in God's Word, let's let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to your word. And Lord, we ask that you would move in us and among us and through us. That your word might be proclaimed faithfully. Lord, that the Lord Jesus might get all the honor and praise and glory. Help us, Father, and help me to speak your word clearly. We thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All I have to do is remember that mask. Um. As was said, our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At the end of chapter 15, uh, Paul makes an interesting statement, beginning at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Because of Jesus, and especially because we know that he is risen from the dead, our whole view of this world is different. We rejoice not only because Jesus died in our place, not only because we know we have a home in heaven, We rejoice because Jesus is risen from the dead. 
And knowing that, we know that we too shall rise, imperishable and immortal, as he is. And we know better than those who say, the dead do not live again. But there is a sobering thought here. All humanity will rise. Some to glory with the Lord Jesus. Some to eternal shame and the second death. And everything we do as followers of the Lord Jesus should be colored by that fact. Because we know that the Lord Jesus is risen. Because we know something that the rest of the world can, at best, only guess at or hope for, we know we have work to do. Incredible as it might sound, the sovereign God has chosen to allow us the privilege of working with him in many different arenas to proclaim the availability of salvation in Christ Jesus. I think I may have shared this with you before, but it's a couple of years ago now. I was driving down our street and there was one of our neighbors holding his young child, maybe, oh, 18 months old. Dad was pressure washing the truck. And the, the young one had his hand on the wand. He was pressure washing the truck with Dad. Now, it's a cute picture. But think of it like this. We are that little child. God is doing the work. But he lets us be part of it. He doesn't need us, really. But he wants us to be involved in what he's doing. And that is a high privilege. Now, you notice... Paul links the resurrection with everything that we do. And then he says in, in, in chapter 16, remember there's no chapter divisions, actually no verse divisions either in the Greek text, okay? So he just goes, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints. It's all one thought. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, clearly, we don't have 
all the letters that Paul wrote. For example, if we turn to his letter to Galatians, we don't find any specific reference to a collection for believers in Jerusalem. Now, it's possible, I'll grant, that his direction to those churches was given verbally. But I think that is unlikely. So, he's given some direction to the churches in Galatia. But regardless of that, this is not the first collection of money for the saints in and around Jerusalem. There had been at least one earlier um, and Luke records it in, in uh, Acts chapter 11. Uh, so this one was maybe five or six years earlier. That area had suffered economically because of drought, because of crop failure. And then you compound that with the persecution of believers so that Many of them were living in abject poverty. So they needed help. So Paul is busy organizing this collection for their, their help. And not only is this a good thing to help our brothers and sisters in Christ through a difficult time, but think about this. The Corinthian church was largely Gentile. So a collection coming from Gentile believers to and be, being given to Jewish or believers of Jewish heritage, that would serve to forge a bond between Gentile and Jew. Paul had written, in fact, to the Galatians, and he said, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Bringing forward, we have an obligation to love our sisters and brothers in Christ. Remember that that was the way that Jesus said that we would be recognized as his by our loving unity across all man-made and ethnic divisions. We looked at our, at the obligations of Christians to uh, those who minister to them when we uh, we're working on 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There Paul made it very clear that he did not want to receive anything from the Corinthian church, even though he had the perfect right to insist on it. Um, but for their sakes, for the health of the church, and for the reputation of the Lord Jesus in Corinth, Paul instead supported himself through his tent-making work. But this collection, 
This collection was not for him. Nor was it particularly for any of the other apostles. It was instead destined to help believers in and around Jerusalem who were in very tough economic straits. Now, interestingly, we just have a passing reference here, a hint that the early church gathered regularly on the first day of the week. That shows the critical importance of the resurrection of Jesus in our faith. That most of the church, even today, most of the church prefers to mark the first day of the week, resurrection day, by gathering for public worship. It was on this day, every week, that the Corinthian Christians were to set something aside in proportion to the blessing they had received. Now, a few things here to be noted. This is not tithing. Um, The tithe was an obligation for Jews living under the old covenant. But we Christians live under a higher law. And God has given us the freedom to decide what the phrase, as he may prosper, might mean for each of us in our unique situations. Again, every Christian was to be involved. And that likely over a period of weeks to months in the gathering of this gift for the saints. This was not an exercise any could leave for the more wealthy to accomplish, nor was it to be a single flash-in-the-pan, emotion-driven event. Rather, it was to be carefully thought out, disciplined effort involving every Christian in Corinth and also in Galatia and Macedonia. And as in most financial matters of in public institutions, and especially in charitable organizations, the handling of this money was to be above reproach. Remember, this is in a time long before central banks, long before certified checks or e-transfers, the money was going to have to be hand-carried from Galatia, to uh, from uh, Corinth, rather, to Jerusalem. Now, that's quite a trip. And a lot of it on foot. And that meant that there was going to be danger, both from uh, robbery by others, and it was going to be a significant temptation to the courier as well. So the church in Corinth was given the responsibility to appoint and to accredit specific people to carry this gift to Jerusalem. Maybe Paul would go too, but his travel plans at the moment were somewhat fluid. Anytime we start dealing with money, we need to be careful. 
And Paul goes on and in verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You read this paragraph and you say, Paul's travel plans are definitely indefinite. Um, maybe Paul was remembering the injunction in, that's found in Proverbs 16. Um, in verse 1 it says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then again in verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I like the the way the footnote of it for sixteen uh, the footnote in one translation for Proverbs sixteen one puts it. The footnote just says, "Man proposes, God disposes." Years earlier, when Paul and Silas were going westward by land. They had learned that the Lord often has plans that differed from theirs. They were prevented from sharing the gospel with those in either Asia or Bithynia and were instead directed to Macedonia, which was a significant distance from where they were. And you can read about this divine change of plan in Acts 16. So, you know, Paul had learned some lessons along the way. And when we, you know, looking at this First Corinthians passage, it's hard to know for sure what time period Paul is speaking about here, but it's likely to be less than a year. He's talking a few months. From Ephesus, he had hoped to go to Macedonia, then to Corinth, taking the longer land route around the Aegean Sea, likely visiting Philippi and Thessalonica en route. But he learned the hard way that he needed to hold his plans with an open hand. As I remember one sage uh, put it, blessed be the flexible for they shall not get bent out of shape. And as it turned out, Paul had a couple of changes of plans, including a hurried, brief visit to Corinth, one that he referred to in 2 Corinthians as being painful. There's a the, the key to Paul's planning is the phrase, if the Lord permits. Whatever we do, whatever we do, we are either following the will of the Lord or we're going our own way. We need to commit all our planning to the God who loves us so dearly that we might be able to bring him the glory and the honor. 
And there's another thing about planning, as as Phil frequently puts it, in the will of the Lord. If our motives are pure in that we want above all else to bring glory to the Lord Jesus, then all we need to do really is the thing that's in front of us. And you can then count on being directed by the scripture or by the Lord's direct intervention if that is contrary to the will of the Lord at that moment. Just remember, you tried to ride a bike. You can't balance on a bike that isn't moving. At least, not for long. Uh, stationary bikes, notwithstanding. Uh, neither is the Lord likely to guide us when we're not already in motion. Paul concluded this paragraph about his travel plans with the words, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Again, we need to step back into um, Acts uh, 19 to get some detail here. But Paul recognized the opportunity given him by the Lord to minister the gospel in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was no small city. It was one of the largest in the Roman Empire at that time. And after he'd been driven out of the synagogue, he found another venue in the city. And apparently for five hours every day, he preached and taught and trained over a period of two years. And the effect of that phenomenal teaching was that the gospel literally exploded throughout the whole Roman province of Asia. Churches like Colossae, Laodicea, Sardis, Pergamum, other churches um, mentioned in the, the seven letters in Revelation were planted all through the area at around about this time. And all this because the apostle was teaching revolutionary truth that sent people out with such a spirit of enthusiasm that they simply couldn't contain it. In this way, churches were started all over the place. That was the wide door for effective work that was open to him. And there was opposition, of course. You remember from your reading of Acts 19, at the heart of the city was the Temple of Diana, a pagan temple where idols were worshipped in ugh, disgusting and degrading sexual ways. The Christian church stood against the whole traffic of that temple, and yet it, that temple was the heart of the city. It was the banking place for all the merchants. Everything gathered around it. And then there are also the Jewish synagogues, that, that bitterly opposed what Paul was doing. They hated him and hounded him everywhere he went. And then, of course, Ephesus was given over to superstition and magic and occult practices. And against these many adversaries, the tiny church 
of the Lord Jesus stood, absolutely contrary to everything the city stood for, and yet with such power and force and effectiveness that it was overturning the economic system of the city and the silversmiths were getting upset because their idol-making business was being destroyed. You can see why Paul wanted to stay and to see the, to the continued um, and growing effectiveness of the gospel in the area. But why did he suggest that he was going to stay until Pentecost? Why that date? Neither the pagans nor these new Jew, uh, new Christians would have paid much attention to the Jewish feasts. But think about when Pentecost comes in the calendar. It's 50 days, roughly seven weeks after Passover or Easter. That typically puts Pentecost somewhere around about the middle of May. By that time, the winter storms are past. The shipping season has opened and passenger travel would be much easier. Think about what happens around here. The end of May. The uh, the holiday season starts to open up. People start being absent on Sunday because they're somewhere else. So that was when Paul planned to leave Ephesus for work in other regions, including Corinth and a possible trip to Jerusalem. Then Paul switched focus again to commend his several of his fellow workers. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do uh, be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Um, the churches of Asia send your greetings, send your greetings, Aquila and Prissa, or Priscilla, um, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings Greet one another with a holy kiss. If the instructions that Paul gave uh, regarding Timothy here are somewhat parallel to the instructions he gave to Timothy directly in his second letter to Timothy. Because he was much younger than Paul, some were tempted to dismiss him But Paul reminded the Corinthians that Timothy was to be treated with the same level of respect that they gave to him. 
Apollos was also a colleague of Paul's and not a rival as some in Corinth saw him. Stephanus and his household were the first converts in the Corinthian area where they continued to serve the Lord. And Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus probably brought the letter from Corinth to which Paul was responding. And no doubt they also brought their own observations regarding the life of the church, which at least in some ways Paul found refreshing. Aquila and and Prissa, or Priscilla, were Jewish converts to Christ who had recently arrived from Rome when Paul first met them at Corinth. He worked with them as a tent maker for a time, and they shared his ministry in Corinth. And then later, when Paul left Corinth for Ephesus, they also relocated there and worked with him. Buried among this list of Paul's fellow workers, there's a list of five imperatives, five commands, verses uh, 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Now, the first four of these, seem to have a military flavor, much like that of a a commanding officer's orders to his men on the eve of battle. The Corinthians and we are to be watchful. This spring, the rabbit that was eating the crocuses in front of our house was constantly aware of everything around it. You could tell by the twitch of its ears. And with good reason. There are a lot of dogs in the area, and the bears were just coming out of hibernation too. But that's the same kind of watchfulness we are to embrace. In other places, for example, in in, uh, in his letter to Philippi, Paul urges us to look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in his message to the um, Ephesian elders in Acts 20, um, he, he told them to beware the, full, the fierce wolves who will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and those from among your own selves who will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We are to be sober-mindedly watchful of the devil's activity. Now, this opens the whole can of worms of spiritual warfare, and unfortunately, our time is gone. But think about this. Do we really know what hunts us? Remember, Peter said that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do we know where he is in relation to ourselves or to our family or to our Christian brothers and sisters? 
Likewise, we're to stand firm in the faith. This kind of resolve is no mere um, good intention of the flimsy New Year's kind. This is a true resolve, a holy, stubborn determination. It's drawing the line in the sand and refusing to back down. It's a will to hold the ground, come what may. Paul uses this kind of language frequently in his letters. Perhaps the best remembered is um, Ephesians 6.13, where he says to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The imperative to act like men is Paul's politically incorrect way of saying, be courageous. It's a call for us to act in obedience to our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus. And we are to be strong. We need to steel ourselves against whatever fear the threat provokes and resolve to stand our ground. That's what spiritual strength looks like on the ground. In Paul's mind, to be strong is to choose courageous action in the face of danger, but only in the strength and with the weaponry that God supplies us. Faithless strength or weapons are of no use in this battle. And finally, Paul reminds us, let all that you do be done in love. Love, when you boil it down, as we saw in our uh, exploration of 1 Corinthians 13 a few weeks ago, love is the greatest power at work between God and, and man and, and between human beings. Love is the most destructive power against the domain of darkness. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil And he did this primarily by when he laid his life down for us as a propitiation for our sin and then instructed us for us to lay down our lives for one another in the spirit of gracious, patient, sacrificial kindness. Nothing demonstrates and communicates the gospel as clearly as love. Nothing is as relationally healing as love. And when love is lacking, that's the evidence of the influence of the enemy. So, as the writer to the Hebrews put it, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. For words and deeds of love, while being the most healing to the human soul, are also the most spiritually destructive acts that we can commit against our spiritual adversary. And going back to the last verse of chapter 15. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. Heavenly Father, we do worship you. Your name is love. 
Your name is Jesus. And he has come into our hearts, Lord. Help us to walk in love. Even this day, Lord, may we be your messengers of peace, love, reconciliation, forgiveness, and yes, joy. And as we leave this place, we say amen and hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.